0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study is his teaching in our past history. And uh, being children of the king, we touched on, on some important aspects of what it means to be a child or a son. Uh, but another important thing, the other side of the coin, so to speak, a child of the king must know who his father is. We must know who we are children of. And so it's important to understand things that are revealed about God, particularly his identity, because knowing him and his identity actually has a direct impact on our identity because it's related to that. So today we're going to be spending some time looking at some historical aspects when it comes to different concepts about who God really is and examining them. Uh, We have covered the biblical foundation for that and other studies. Some of them are on the table there in DVDs and different, uh, from different angles. So we won't be doing as much Bible today. We're going to be doing a historical study. And this historical study will trace the history of what God has revealed after the scriptures, that's the foundation, and on down to our age today and even onward. So this is basically a, a brief outline of what we will be uh, looking at today. So we've got a fair ground to cover. So I'll just go straight into it and talk about uh, the first aspect. This definition of God, if we were to read that definition there uh, that tells us that But There is one God in the Trinity and the Trinity in the unity without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. For the person of the Father is one, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. This is a definition of the Trinity, which if you were asked anyone today in any church who believes in the Trinity, they would say, well, this pretty much is an accurate description of what I believe about God. And it doesn't matter whether they be, they be in Protestant uh, or not Protestant churches. But the interesting thing is that this definition actually comes from the Athanasian creed. And it is the foundational understanding of the Roman Catholic system. Now there's something about that. The reason why I put that first is important to understand what the definition is. And people who subscribe to that definition. And uh, here is another summarized form of the very same definition, here it is, Trinity, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons, that's the same thing, now if I were to ask people today as well, you know, uh, how many people would agree to that, all those people who, who believe in the Trinity, they'll put their hands up, now it's interesting that this definition actually comes from this book called 27 Fundamentals, which is from an Adventist, uh, that's an Adventist publication, so a lot of us are familiar with that. And if you if you notice, there's not really that much difference between those two definitions. And uh, Rome actually recognizes that, because uh, this is the opinion of uh, one uh, uh, bishop here, and uh, this is what he says, 7th the Adventists agree with many Catholic doctrines, including the Trinity. Now, this is something, if uh, you haven't thought about it, uh, this aspect, this is something that should cause some concern. How is it that Rome and her definition of God and the Seventh-day Adventist Church and our definition of God is the same? It hasn't always been the same. So today we're going to explore a little bit of the differences and, and just so we can understand how did we get to be in this position, and is there actually a right way, a different idea, and of course, that similarity is seen in the illustrations as well, this is how Rome uh, illustrates their concept of the Trinity, that's from a Catholic book, and the color illustration there is from a Seventh-day Adventist book. Now, uh, I don't think uh, I need to ask you if you can see any difference, other than the color or maybe the design, it's, it's essentially the same thing, it's the same concept that we're dealing with, and like I said, it hasn't always been the case, and that's why we are admonished to do something, uh, and this is a warning we're given in the Spirit of Prophecy, we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us, and His teaching in our past history, and this is where the title of this study comes from, His teaching in our past history, what was God's teaching in our past history, and of course the picture there is, uh, is an image that we get from the book of Revelation, The woman, the pure woman, who is crowned with these 12 stars, who is standing on the moon and clothed with the sun. Of course, it's a picture of the woman in Revelation. What chapter? Anyone remember? Chapter 12. Okay, and of course, this uh, represents God's true church, God's true people. I like to ask a lot of questions, and uh, I look for answers. It tells me people are thinking and awake. So just to let you know what I like to do. And of course, this this is a picture of God's true church, all through the ages, and uh, of course in Revelation chapter 12 there, it talks about God's true church when it went into a period of obscurity, we call that time the church in the wilderness, and the interesting thing is that the church in the wilderness is really the connecting link between the apostolic church, which was founded on the scriptures, and how the early church started, and God's remnant people in the last days, you realize that don't you? It's an important link. There is a consistent chain of truth throughout. And of course, uh, how much more should that chain of consistent truth be, except when it comes to the issue of who is the God that is worshipped? So we're going to do a brief examination and see this consistent link. Like I said, the foundation from the Bible is established in other studies. But we're going to pick up in the church in the wilderness, in the early period of Christian history, as it is referred to, and see what we can learn about this particular aspect. Now, this uh, book here, Truth Triumphant, has anyone read this book? I'm just curious. Okay, a few people, not too many. Truth Triumphant is the book that tells the story of the church in the wilderness. And this is what it talks about in this particular quote regarding this point. It says, the burning question of the decades succeeding the Council of Nicaea was how to state the relations of the three persons of the Godhead. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost. And then it continues, it says, the papal party, after that, proceeded to call those who would not subscribe to this teaching, Arians, while they took to themselves the title of (coughs) Trinitarians. Now this is a historical fact. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, you had these councils and all the church leaders would come together, and one of the biggest discussions and debates at the time was the issue of how are we going to define our understanding of God? Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the, the Catholic or the Papal Party, they defined God in the way that we just read earlier. And they refer to that as Trinitarian. And anyone who disagreed with that and who did not subscribe to their definition, they refer to as? As Arian. And we want to explore that a little bit because you still hear this term today. From time to time, I hear the term Arian. And I just want to look at where it comes from and why it is used. Uh, but here is uh, another statement from the same book. Notice what it says here. In an earlier chapter, it was noted how the papacy stigmatized as Arians those who disagreed with her in general. And in particular, how she branded those as Judaizers who were convinced that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment was the seventh day. Now, interesting point here is this. The word Arian was used by Rome as a stigma. That's what it says. Isn't that right? And it's a stigma that applied to anyone who disagreed with her. It was like a kind of a theological slur. Yeah. It's a label that has negative connotations. Oh, these are Arian. They don't agree with the mother church. Yeah. And particularly that took uh, rise of course when they, of the over the issue of the Trinity because uh, the teachings of Arius uh, were different to what Rome believed. And we're going to look at that in a minute as well. But that's where the term comes from. It refers to an actual person uh, at the time. And uh, In the the book of Daniel, we have a prophecy that we're all familiar with. This is just a brief revision, a lot of things that we're familiar with, but just to tie a few knots together here. In Daniel 7, 8, it talks about the little horn that comes up, and we know who that little horn is? It's the papal system, and it says, one clear description of it is, when this horn comes up, three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. In other words, this little horn uproots three of the... How many were there originally? <laughs> Ten? When this little horn comes up, it uproots three, uh, three of these uh, horns by the roots. So and Of course, we know, we look at the different tribes that made up uh, Eastern, uh, Western Europe at the time, and we find that indeed there were three particular tribes or three horns that were uprooted or were extinguished. They are no longer in existence. That's the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. And uh, if we look at history, and we look at what the common denominator was between these three tribes as to cause them to be uprooted. And you will find that these tribes are said to have been Aryan. In other words, they disagreed with Rome, <laughs> particularly over the issue of the <laughs> Trinity. And they were referred to as Arian. Now, of course, it's Rome mainly who champions the, the, this label. And of course, that label is referred to them to indicate that they were heretics. And of course they deserved what they got. That was Rome's way of treating those who disagreed and who did not accept the teachings of the mother church. Just wipe them out. Now it's interesting that these three tribes were wiped out completely. We don't have records of any of their civilization, their culture, their art, their writings, their literature. We don't have anything. What we have is what Rome tells us about them. Except for a few scant references here and there in history. But the majority of the information we have about them is what their enemies tell us. And of course, in their enemies' eyes, they were heretics. Now, it's important to keep that in mind because it helps us understand things. But let's go on a little bit and see what else this book tells us about this particular aspect. Referring to these people that were refer- uh, called Aryans, this is what it says. It is doubtful if many believed Christ to be a created being. That was the charge that was circulated. Generally, those evangelical bodies who opposed the papacy and who were branded as Arians confessed both the divinity of Christ and that he was begotten, not created by the Father. They recoiled from other extreme deductions and speculations concerning the Godhead. That's a very revealing piece of information, isn't that right? They were charged with believing that Christ is created, but even historians are honest enough to admit, say it's really doubtful that they believe that. They most likely actually believe that He was begotten, and they confess the divinity of Christ. You know, it's interesting that nothing has changed. You still hear the same accusations to this day. Isn't that right? You know, if, if you disagree with the concept of the Trinity in some people's minds, straight away, you don't believe in the divinity of Christ, and you believe Christ is It was Rome that started that particular line of thinking or line of accusation. And here's what it says about Arius. And that's an interesting aspect too. It says, whether the teachings of Arius were such as are usually represented to us or not, who can say? Philippus Limbrock doubts that Arius himself ever held that Christ was created instead of being begotten. Now, I'm sharing this information with you, not in defense of what Arius believed or to figure out what he believed, but it just gives you an idea that not everything we hear in reference to him from Rome is accurate. Yeah. Rome liked to stigmatize those who disagreed with her and to give them false charges. And uh, some historians are honest enough here to admit that. And so we see that early on in the Christian history, history of the Christian church, there was uh, confusion, there was debate, there was argument over who God really is and the, the fact is that when the church went into the wilderness and for 1260 years the church was driven into the wilderness by this papal system we find that the church in the wilderness maintained the truth that God had established in the word in other words they did not agree with Rome when it came to who God is. They did not accept Rome's idea about God as defined by a trinity. And like I said, this book uh, gives us an account of the story of the church in the wilderness. And uh, I find in in this book also, this interesting statement that gives us a nice summary about all these churches that are considered in the wilderness. It says, no wonder that the Celtic, the Gothic, the Waldensian, the Armenian churches and the great churches of the East, as well as other bodies differed profoundly from the papacy in its metaphysical conceptions of the Trinity and consequently in the importance of the Ten Commandments. Now the word there, metaphysical conception, it just means philosophical. So Rome's idea of God was a philosophical concept called the Trinity that we find all these different bodies of believers disagreed with, not in a small way, but it says here, profoundly. Now some of these might be a little bit more obscure to us but I think we're very familiar with the Waldenses isn't that right? Because they're mentioned in the book Great Controversy. It's interesting that they did not accept Rome's teaching of the philosophical trinity and they maintained that belief until of course the time when God brought about a reformation of course for 1260 years up until 1798 the church was in the wilderness and then uh A number of things happened. The Reformation took place a little bit before that, of course. Uh, But God began to work in earnest not long after that time period. So we're just quickly tracing the history here. And of course, we're familiar with the Millerite movement that happened here in America, not only here, but it spread to other parts of the world. And the preaching of October 22, 1844 was uh, the defining element of the Millerite movement uh, close to its end there, or close to the time when almost... uh, coming up to that particular date and uh, of course in this movement god raised a very special messenger and uh, you know who the messenger's name is or was okay ellen white usually she's the first one we think of but before ellen white there was another messenger uh, as far as uh, in the prophetic office. So William Miller was a preacher, he was a Bible student, and he preached, of course, God used him. But God had people that he communicated with through visions and dreams directly from him. And they were as his messengers. Ellen White was one of them, obviously, but she wasn't the first one. Actually, the very first one was a man by the name of? William Foy. And of course, William Foy is rather obscure today. A lot of people don't know about William Foy, he was a black preacher, Baptist preacher, that God uh, revealed to him visions and dreams about things that took place in heaven. As a matter of fact, he and Ellen White met. And uh, this is what Mrs. White has to say about him. She says, uh, then another time there was Foy, that had had visions, he, had four, he had, had four visions, they were written out and published, and it is queer that I cannot find them in any of my books, but we have moved so many times, he had four. So according to servant of the Lord here, she tells us that this man had a legitimate vision, not once, but four visions, and they were actually written and published. Now here's a question, has anyone read the visions of William Foy? I thought so. <laughs> I, I hadn't either until I was looking at some things, but William Foy, generally, this is the idea that we have understand as Adventists. We understand that before Alan White, there were other two messengers and they both rejected the office. And so God went to Alan White. Isn't that right? Yeah. And there was Hazen Foss, who was a relative of source of Alan White. And there was William Foy. And of course, you know, they, they were not faithful and God had to use Alan White. But uh, that's not quite accurate. It's true as far as Hazen Foss is concerned. But William Foy actually was faithful, he had the vision, he wrote it down, he published it, Ellen White had a copy of it, and as a matter of fact, they actually met, and the way of their meeting was very interesting, because one day Ellen White was standing, sharing some of the things that God had showed her, and all of a sudden, this man in the congregation started jumping up and down, and saying, that's what the Lord showed me, and it turned out to be William Foy, and of course, he had these four visions he did not have anymore, and... uh, Ellen White like I said met him and confirmed that. So it's interesting that William Foy had something to say when it comes to knowing who God is. Would you like to hear what he had to say? Yes, everybody say yes. Okay, let's just have a look here quickly. This is what William Foy said and this is one of his published Visions. He wrote it down in in this book, uh, the Christian, uh, William Foy, Christian Experience. That's where he has these visions. Very interesting read, actually. And you can find it on the internet quite easily. But anyway, let's see what he says here. This is a vision that he had of heaven. Okay, so he goes to heaven and this is what he sees. At the right side of the mountain appeared a mighty angel with raiment like unto burnished gold. His legs were like pillars of flaming fire. His countenance was like the lightning and his crown gave light to this boundless place. And those that had not passed through death could not look upon his countenance. I then beheld upon the side of this mound letters like pure gold which said the Father and the Son. Directly under these letters stood the mighty angel whose crown lighted up the place and all the heavenly host worshipped at his feet round about the mountain. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) He sees a scene of worship Uh, uh, on the side, he says, he sees this mountain, and he sees this angel. Who is this angel that he's describing, you think? It's Christ. Okay, it's the Son of God. He receives worship. He's he's the leader. He's not a created angel. You know what that means. He's, He's the messenger of the covenant. And this mountain is the same mountain that Lucifer wanted to put his throne on. He says, I will sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will be like the Most High to receive worship. So this is the mountain where God's throne is, where God is worshipped. And right there written in writing, it tells us who is worshipped on that mountain. What's it say? The Father and the Son. Son. Definitely not a Trinity. Isn't that right? I find that very, very interesting. Anyway, that's just something here on the side. Ellen White, of course, is the messenger we're more familiar with. And of course, in December of 1844, she received her first vision about the travels of the Advent movement. And uh, I find it interesting that God gave two messengers and their testimony when it comes to who he is, is consistent. Not one, two for the last days. And uh, like I said, some of us might not be too familiar with the other one, but uh, that's just a sample of it. Ellen White, before she she joined the Millerite movement and before she even became an Adventist, was actually raised as a Methodist. And as a Methodist, this is the Methodist faith when it comes to who God is. I'll just read the highlighted parts because to save time. It talks about, in the unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance power and eternity the father the son and the holy ghost or the holy spirit so the methodist faith when it comes to god is identical to rome it's based on the athanasian creed it is the concept of the trinity and ellen white was raised with this understanding. This is what she would have been taught by her parents. Her father was a pillar in the, in the Methodist church uh, in her, in, in those days. And so that's important to keep in mind that she had a certain understanding. But when she became an Adventist and when God started revealing things to her, she discarded that understanding, as we shall see. Because it's interesting. A lot of people would have us believe today that Ellen White actually taught The concept of the (laughs) trinity. It might not necessarily be identical to Rome's, they might say, but she taught a trinity. Now that's interesting to keep in mind that that was her background because as we examine that claim, we will see that it doesn't really hold up. But let's see what she does say about the progression of truth and progressive truth. Because I hear that a lot and I'm sure you do too, you say, well, you know, Uh, Ellen White, she started writing things and but she progressed and later on towards the end of her life we have some of these statements that she developed into this concept of the Trinity or the Triune God or whatever people like to refer to it and it's just a variation of the Catholic concept. It's really what it boils down to. Is that really the case? Is that the nature of progressive truth? And uh, we're told otherwise about that, that progressive truth is really consistent. Notice what it says. I do not wish to ignore or drop one link in the chain of evidence that was formed as after the passing of the time in 1844. The evidence given in our early experience has the same force that it had then. The truth is the same as it ever has been and not a pin or pillar can be moved from the structure of truth. That which we sought out for out, for, out of the word in 44, 45 and 46 remains the truth in every particular. So she identifies here certain years, as to when they sought out these foundational important truths, and not one pin or pillar of them is to be removed. And of course when we share that people say yes, well that might be true, but the Godhead and who God really was, was not part of that investigation, that came later. You heard that? Yeah. Well we want to see what she had to say. Is that something that God revealed later? That we're The Advent people not ready for that then? Or do we have different information? And uh, concerning that time, this is what we're actually told. It says here, many of our people do not realize how firmly the foundation of our faith has been laid. My husband, Elder Joseph Bates, Father Pierce, Elder Hiram Edson, and others who were keen, noble, and true, were among those who, after the passing of the time in 1844, searched for the truth as for hidden treasure. So we're speaking about the same time period here. And notice what they searched for and what happened. She says, I would be taken off in vision, and a clear explanation of the passage we had been studying would be given me with instruction as to how we were to labor and teach effectively. Thus, Light was given that helped us to understand the scriptures in regard to Christ, his mission, and his priesthood. Now three things, I want us to think about that just for a minute. She talks about... The foundation of our faith here. And she says, part of the foundation of our faith, when we'd be studying the Bible and we'd come to a point in the scriptures where we had disagreement or we didn't understand, I would be taken off in vision, and a clear understanding of this verse would be given and how we are to teach. And in this way, we came to understand correctly three things: Christ, his mission, and his priesthood. So, in other words, The pioneers of the Adventist church understood the correct biblical teaching as to who Christ is. You see, that's necessary in order for you to understand his mission and his priesthood. You cannot appreciate or understand his mission and his priesthood correctly unless you understand who he really is. You see that? And that's referred here as a foundational point of faith. And then earlier we just read that these foundational points that were sought out of the word in those years cannot be? move. Now that alone is an argument that should settle any controversy over this issue when it comes to knowing the Son and the Father and all the other associated aspects. But it's just interesting to keep that in mind as we go on. Uh, and people when we say, well we, we talk about the Godhead and they say, well you know the God is not really a foundational doctrine, it's not a pillar of the faith, it's not one of those... Mm, what's going on here? Maybe just whoa let me just fix that. Sorry, are we still on? Okay, we're still on? Okay. Uh, and people, you mentioned the God, I say, well, that, like I said, that's something that developed later. But it's interesting that we find from the spirit of prophecy, she tells us that understanding and knowing who God is and his personality is actually a foundational landmark truth. And this is what we're told here. Notice what it says. Those who seek to remove the old landmarks are not holding fast. They are not remembering how they have received and heard. Those who try to bring in theories that would remove the pillars of our faith concerning the sanctuary or concerning the personality of God or of Christ are working as blind men. So the personality of God and of Christ is a landmark truth of no less importance than the Sanctuary. Well, that makes sense. What's the point of knowing, understanding sanctuary? If you don't know who the sanctuary is about, who is working in the sanctuary and what all that's about. It's the building or who's in the building that's more important. Obviously, that's very significant. Who is in the building? It's no point knowing the sanctuary without knowing Christ, his ministry. And of course, his ministry there involves the Father. And so the church understood correctly the personality of God and of Christ. And here's some examples of that. This is James White, of course. And this is what he had to say about this particular aspect. Here he says, here we might mention the Trinity, which does away with the personality of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. And that was said in 1855. This was a result of their study together. So the Church, and he's here speaking on the behalf of the Church, he's, he's one of the founders of the Church, the Church understood that the concept of the Trinity destroys the personality of God and of Christ. Hopefully we'll see how that is the case. And uh, some people say, well that's a bit of an extreme statement. Uh, I don't know if James White was right about that and they have some some questions. Well this is what Mrs. White says about her husband. She says, God has permitted the precious light of truth to shine upon his word and illuminate the mind of my husband. He may reflect the rays of light from the presence of Jesus upon others by his preaching and writing. Now that's a pretty high commendation. Don't you think? So that means, it doesn't mean everything he says is right. But when it comes to important biblical foundational truths, God has blessed his mind as he wrote and as he preached. That's what we're told. And so we are to take that, uh, you know, with some weight, we can't take that too lightly. And uh, again, this is what we're told here, that which was sought out for, out of the word, in 1844, 1845, and 1846, remains the truth in every particular. particular. Now I highlighted here the year 1846 for a reason, because in that same year, in 1846, We have this particular statement from James White, same year that Mrs. White talked about. This is what he says, the way spiritualizers have disposed of or denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ is first using the old unscriptural Trinitarian creed. Now he's going to explain to us how the Trinity destroys the personality of God and of Christ. He says that Christ, that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Though they have not one passage to support it, while we have plain scripture testimony in abundance that he is the son of the eternal God. Now you might say, "Well, what's that mean? Well, it's simply this, that the concept of the Trinity does not allow for Christ to truly be a son. It teaches that all three, as we read earlier, are co-equal, co-eternal persons that have always been there, and all three make up one God. In so doing, they actually deny that Christ is the Son. It teaches that Christ is the eternal God, the Spirit is the eternal God, and the Father is the eternal God. All three are the eternal God. It actually destroys the personality of each. It destroys that relationship between each. And that's what James White basically is saying here. And this teaching, according to Mrs. White, from 1846, all the way to when she wrote that statement in 1906, is to remain unchanged. That's what she said. This is not the only one. Here's another statement from uh, John Madison. He's another one of the pioneers. He says, Christ is the only literal Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. He is God because He is the Son of God, not by virtue of His resurrection. Interesting. That when they understood the scriptures to teach that Christ is the Son of God, that was what made Him divine. You see what he says there, he is God because he is the Son of God. In other words, his divinity is based on his sonship. In other words, this is the greatest proof and evidence for the divinity of Christ, that he is the Son of the Divine Father. As we were talking earlier, he receives the life of God. That's the divine life, not just life. Everything that God is, Christ has by inheritance. And so the nature of progressive truth is important to understand. Progressive truth does not contradict all truth. That's what we're told. We have no doubt, neither have we had a doubt for years, that the doctrines we hold today are present truth, and that we are nearing the judgment. And this was written in the year 1870. Interesting that two years later, uh, we have a statement of beliefs written from the church, he says the doctrines we hold today are present truths, she said that in 1872 and we looked at what foundational doctrines were, particularly when it comes to knowing Christ and the personality of God and of Christ, and in the statement of beliefs of the church in 1872, it says uh, here, the following propositions may be taken as a summary of the principal features of the religious faith, that's the Adventist, upon which there is, so far as we know, entire unanimity throughout the body. In other words, we all agree on these summary points. Point one, that there is one God, a personal spiritual being, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, infinite in wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and mercy, unchangeable, and everywhere present by his representative, the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit here is included in the same article when it's talking about the Father. Of course, here they're talking about the Father. Article number two, it says that there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of of the Eternal Father. and Article 3 has to do with the Bible. The Holy Scriptures are our foundation of faith and so on. Now it's interesting that they did not have a separate article for the Holy Spirit. You know why? They did not understand from the Bible that the Holy Spirit was a being like the Father and the Son. The Spirit was simply the presence of the Father and the Son. That's what they mean there when they say he is the representative of God. God himself is present everywhere by his representative of the Holy Spirit and of course the psalm that they're quoting there is the psalm of David where he says you know cast me not away uh, or he says whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence obviously the church was not founded on the Trinitarian understanding and uh, here's another statement from James Wright and uh, a lot of people find this statement uh, hard to digest says, the father was greater than the son in that he was first. The son was equal with the father in that he had received all things from the father. Now, a lot of people today say, well, that statement just is not true. It's not accurate. But that was the church's understanding. And this statement was made in 1881. That's the year James died. He died a few months later. So up to the very year of his death, James White maintained a consistent biblical understanding. And he expresses it in a number of ways and means. There was not the concept of the Trinity. It was the biblical understanding that God is the source of all things. God the Father is the great source of all and that His Son received all things from the Father. uh, Like I said, the... the Spirit of Prophecy, it's good that the Spirit of Prophecy confirms some of these things. Because when you share this with some people, they start saying, "Oh, well, you know, he wasn't right in that point and so on. But notice what it says here. God is the Father of Christ. Christ is the Son of God. To Christ has been given an exalted position. He has been made equal with the Father. All the counsels of God are opened to his Son. Yeah. Now, there is no Trinitarian that can agree to that statement. You know, one time we were having a meeting and we shared the statement. And there was one brother in the, in the room and he, uh, he obviously was a Trinitarian. And then he saw the statement and I think it, it really hit him because he said, did Ellen White say that? I said, yes, brother, that's Testimonies, Volume 8. That's we're all told to read the Testament. And he wrote the and he just found it very difficult to believe that Ellen White had written that. You see, some of these statements are not talked about when it comes to God. Why is that? Some statements are not more important than others. They're all important. And this is just as important as any other statement. It says here that Christ has been given an exalted position. Now chew on that for a while. He has been made equal with the Father. And of course, the reason for that is very simple. It says right there, because God is the Father of Christ... Christ is the Son of God. You know, I find that repetition is almost like God wants us to get it. It's very simple. He says, okay, listen, God is the Father of Christ. Christ is the Son of God. So you don't get it. So you don't mistake it. And it's based on this fact that Christ has been given an exalted position. In other words, he has that position because of his inheritance, because of his sonship. That's what makes him equal with God. And therefore, all the counsels of God are open to his son. Here is John Loughborough uh, objecting to the idea of the Trinity. I'm just giving you a few samples. There is some material on the table. You can find more details. But just a sample to see how this truth was maintained, particularly in the movement that God raised to restore the lost truths that were almost obliterated during the time in the wilderness. Almost. But not completely. But God now is preparing a people for the final movement of earth's history. So he's restoring these foundational truths. That's why we're looking at that in detail. And here it says, uh, he's mentioning some objections to the Trinity. He says it's contrary to common sense. It is contrary to scripture. Its origin is pagan and fabulous. It's not very consonant or consistent with common sense to talk of three being one and one being three. Or as some express it, calling God the triune God or the three one God. If Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are each God, it would be three gods, for three times one is not one, but three. And this is really the problem. He's identified a very good point. If all three are gods in their own right, then you really have three gods. And you have a very big problem when it comes to the first commandment. You see, as Adventists, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments uh, as the fourth commandment, generally, you know, the Sabbath. There's, there's another nine. And the first one is, is number one up there. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, not us. So the concept of three beings who are all God is a contradiction with the first commandment, which talks about only one. Let's just look at that here for a minute. Uh, this is the understanding, as we read it earlier, that there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit, that's a common understanding today. And as we said, if you just add that up, God, God, God means three gods. And this is how it's illustrated. And this really is uh, defined, the theological term for that is tritheism. Tri is three, theism is God, so three gods. Each and every one of them is God. And, and they say, well, all three, they make up this one triune God. Or some people say they make up one Godhead. But as Loughborough just said, if all three are God, then you have three gods. There's no way around it. God plus God plus God equals three gods. And this is why it's important to see that illustrations that people give of the concept of God are strangely pagan in origin. Uh, There's another study there, I think it's on the table, the gods of Babylon. Some of these uh, illustrations that we use to describe the God that we worship actually come from paganism. Not only the illustration, but actually the concept that is contained in the illustration. And whatever name you might give it, it's really the same thing. That's why in the scriptures we never find this this terminology used when it comes to God the Son. You know that it's not there. The, The Bible actually talks about the Son of God, and if you don't find the terminology, God, the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, you actually find the Bible talks about the spirit of, of God, and that's why we very clearly don't see a teaching of three gods in the scriptures, now it's interesting here again, we see the son of God, the spirit of God, everything is of God, he is the source of everything, that's why the scripture is consistent, you see what we're saying, There is only one God, the Father, the great source of all things. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, He is the one of whom are all things. Even the Son is the Son of God. Even the Spirit is the Spirit of God. You see, when we deny this fact, we're actually attacking the position of the Father. We are denying that He is the source of all things. We're saying there are some things, or some ones, that are not of God. Him, and that's a dangerous aspect. Uh, What about 1888? We're familiar with 1888. This is Jones and Wagner, of course. Uh, Did Jones and Wagner have anything to say about that? Well, they certainly did. There's a lot of evidence for that. We'll just look at a brief sample. Here's what Wagner has to say in his book, Christ and His Righteousness, concerning Christ. He says, there was a time when Christ proceeded forth and came from God, from the bosom of the Father. But that time was so far back in the days of eternity that to finite comprehension, it is practically without beginning. So he's saying it is true that Christ proceeded forth and came from God. He's quoting there uh, John 8, 42 and uh, other passages, John 1.18, and and are other scriptures that talks about Christ as the only begotten. As he's saying Christ was he came forth from God, he proceeded from God, he was begotten of God but it was so far back in eternity that to us it's practically without beginning. We can't date it. But it's important to keep in mind that we can't deny the fact just because we can't date it. Just because it's been so long, we can't just say, well, it never really happened. It certainly did happen. Here's an interesting uh, statement that he says in 1890. So This is a couple of years after 1888 when this book was published. And this is what he has to say. Angels are sons of God as was Adam by creation. Christians are sons of God by adoption. But Christ is the Son of God by birth and so Christ is the express image of the Father's person. So he makes a distinction, he says three categories by creation, by adoption, but Christ is neither of those, he's actually begotten or he's a son by birth. And that's what makes him the express image of his father's person. After all God set up this law that everything that we see around us on earth produces after its kind. Isn't that right? The evolution uh, theory would have you believe different, but God has has set up a law. Everything produces after its kind. Interestingly enough, five years later in 1895, we find this statement from the Spirit Prophecy. This is Ellen White. And it's amazingly similar in its sequence. Notice what it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not a son by creation as were the angels nor a son by adoption as is a forgiven sinner, but a son begotten in the express image of the father's person. And you know, I've color coded it here to make it really easy to follow. It's exactly the same thought. You know, Ellen White was familiar with what Wagner had to say. And Ellen White agreed with what Wagner had to say as far as this point was concerned. And I think that's a very, very clear aspect. Now today uh, we find that in the church, This is the Review and Herald, and this uh, book uh, is one of the important references when it comes to the Trinity. Uh, Has anyone read this book? Okay, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) It's hard reading, and uh, it it has a lot of twisty turns. But anyway, I I had to go through it a little bit, and then I I gave up after a while. But I read enough to see what it has to say. And this book, and I've I've heard some of the authors giving uh, presentations and so on, This book basically is in defense of the Trinity, and so it has to come up with some explanation as to why all these pioneers were wrong, and somehow that Ellen White changed. We read some very clear statements, and and they come out and say it very plainly. Here's what it says. They call it the paradigm shift, and on on, uh, on page 196 of that book, uh, this is what it says. Nevertheless, the publication of Ellen White's the desire of ages in 1898 became the continental divide for the Adventist understanding of the Trinity. Continental divide. In other words, the desire of ages is what turned everything around. That's what it's saying, isn't that right? And it's saying so amazing and so startling this change is this change that it's called the paradigm shift. So paradigm shift means if you were walking in one direction You make a paradigm shift means you turn that way and now you're walking in this direction. Okay? And they're saying that turning point is this book called The Desire of Ages. Okay, we're just interpreting what they're saying, right? Are you with me? And and this is basically the whole premise of of this book. It boils down to pinpointing that turning point and trying to to defend that. Interesting that in that admission it tells us that the church was going one way first. Now the question is, does that turning constitute an advancement in truth or a regression into error? And that's for you to decide. So we'll just share the evidence and you can decide. But I think some of the statements read from the spirit of prophecy are very clear. The truth has to be consistent. So we just want to examine briefly, just a couple of statements from the book Desire of Ages. And this is one of the most popular statements that says, in Christ's life, original, unborrowed, underived. Are you familiar with that statement? And people quote that in defense of the Trinity. I'm not sure I see the connection, but that's one of the most foundational statements that are used from this book to defend this idea that this book changed the world as far as the church is concerned when it comes to this topic. And if we look at this statement in its context, that's why I say I fail to see the connection. Here's what it says in its context. Speaking about Christ it says, I lay down of myself. He said, Quoting John 10, in him that's in Christ was life, original, unborrowed, underived. But then it continues, it says, this life is not inherent in man. He can possess it only through Christ. He cannot earn it. It is given him as a free gift if he will believe in Christ as his personal Savior. Now just pause here for a minute. Praise God if we understand what that means. As far as its practical application today. Aside from which point it, and that's what Howard was just talking about. That we have his very life, the same life that he had, we can have. If we believe. But notice here, basically it says this original unborrowed, underived life can be given. Isn't that right? That's what it says right there. This life can be given. And Christ himself was given that original unborrowed, underrived life. And he shares it with all those who believe. Praise God. That's good news. But that's the point that seems to be strangely missed, that this life can be given. And it was given to Christ. It says here in the same book, and we're going to look at this book because that book actually proves the truth about God very clearly. If all we had was the Tsar of ages, you can easily preach and show the truth about God from that book alone. There's a whole section on that. We don't, we're not going to go into all that. It says here, all things Christ received from God, but he took to give. That's in the beginning of the book, chapter 1, page 21. All things Christ received from God. And here's the question, does that include life as well? Absolutely. Did Christ receive life from God? Now the Trinitarian will say, no. Christ has life in himself, original, unborrowed, underived. But we just saw that life can be given. And as a matter of fact, that uh, statement continues and it says so in the heavenly courts in his ministry for all created beings through the beloved son the father's life flows out to all. Whose life flows out to all? The father's life flows out through the son. Now what kind of life does the father have? Original unborn under And so if that life is what flows through the son and the son has it, no wonder Ms. what tells us in Christ is life, original unborn and That's the father's life. As a matter of fact, you can have that life. And that, when you have that life, it does not make you without beginning, does it? Because that's the idea. People say, Christ has life in himself. Therefore, he never got life from anyone. Therefore, he has no beginning. He was never really begotten. He did not inherit life from the Father. That's reading a little bit too much into that statement and ignoring its context. Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism. Yeah, well, that's that's one way of looking at it. That's true. Here's another statement from the same book: The dedication of the firstborn had its origin in the earliest times. God had promised to give the firstborn of heaven to save the sinner. Who's the firstborn of heaven? The one who was promised. He is the firstborn of. Heaven. You see, that now we understand why God had given this instruction even in the patriarchal age that the firstborn of each family had a special role. Each one was a symbol of the firstborn of heaven. Even in Israel, God says, the firstborn belongs to me. When You have a firstborn even of creatures, you redeem them. You go to the temple and you have to go through this ritual and present this and that because the firstborn belongs to me. Why? God is trying to teach his people that I, the God of heaven, I've promised to give you my firstborn to save you. So each firstborn in your families has special status as a reminder that I am giving you my firstborn. Isn't that beautiful? We seem to have forgotten that. But it's written right there in that same book. And this is the warning we have from the Spirit of Prophecy. And this is a this book is, is an example of this warning that she gives us. She says, there will be those once united with us in the faith who will search for new strange doctrines, for something odd and sensational to present to the people. They will bring in all conceivable fallacies and will present them as coming from Mrs. White, that they may beguile souls. And uh, like I said, this book is an example of that. They say, well, Mrs. White is responsible for this change. And this change is in that book, Zara of Ages. There's no such thing. And whatever statement there might be, we're not looking at every single statement harmonizes with everything else that she wrote. It's not that hard to figure out because when you understand the nature of progressive truth you know that it doesn't contradict. It's not like the later revelations are more important than the earlier ones or the later revelations override the older ones. Uh, That's a belief of some other religious groups. But anyway, here are some other statements and just go through those quickly that are clearly cannot be Trinitarian that Mrs. White said. Now these statements are not generally looked at when it comes to the issue of the Trinity. There's only a handful of statements that people like to hold on to and camp on, if you know what I mean. I had one brother tell me, brother, you know, I'm, I'm just where evangelism is, I'm not moving. I said, well, you know, Mrs. White said more than what's in evangelism when it comes to this point. I said, no, that's, that They camp, they like to camp there because they like what it says. Some of these others, they don't like what it says. So I'm going to quote the ones that people don't like. Because she said the same thing. She she wrote both. We have to look at both. We have to be honest. Here's what this one says. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the eternal Father, one in nature and character and purpose. The only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. Simple. There is no other being in all the universe that enters into God's counsels besides Christ. So if you were to say there is another being, you you have created someone that does not exist by twisting the biblical understanding of the Spirit to create someone else. And we're going to look at that a little bit more detail tomorrow. Here's another one. The Father and the Son alone are to be exalted. That's a big problem for the Trinity because the Trinity exalts how many? Three. Here it says only the Father and the Son are to be exalted. Uh, Here's another one. I really like this one. I hardly ever see this one. The only being who was one with God lived the law in humanity, descended to a lowly life of a common laborer and toiled at the carpenter's bench with his earthly parents. Who's that? Of course it is Christ. He is the only being who was one with God. There's no one else who was one with God besides Christ. You know why? God only had one son. He didn't have more. That makes him the only being who is one with God. Here's another interesting aspect, and we're almost there. So, uh, yeah, we're almost done. As far as the different uh, positions in heaven, speaking of Satan, our Lord says that he abode not in the truth. He was once the covering chair, glorious in beauty and holiness. He was next to Christ in exaltation and character. So according to this statement, who was the third highest being in heaven? the created angel Lucifer next to Christ in exaltation and character, now he's a a creature, he's a created being and if we were to illustrate that just so people really uh, can see it as far as divine beings are concerned there's the father, he's the great source of all, there's his only begotten son fully divine because he inherited all things from his father and then you have, next is Lucifer Now I find statements like that, and and I find it interesting, people generally, Trinitarians don't don't quote these statements, because they're unanswerable. And uh, I've seen some creative attempts at trying to explain some of these statements, but uh, that's a bit too plain for me, isn't that right? The third highest being in heaven before the fall, before the creation of man was a creature, it was an angel. That's significant. What about after the fall? Here's what it says in the desire of ages. Interestingly enough. It was Gabriel, the angel next in rank to the son of God, who came with the divine message to Daniel. So after the fall, we have the same thing. It's just a different angel occupies that position because Lucifer fell. So what do you do with these statements? You see, God established the church on the truth and maintained the truth. And this is in the book that is blamed And that is said to be the cause of the paradigm shift of the whole church. Isn't that right? We read that earlier. In that book it tells you that the third position after Christ is occupied by the angel Gabriel. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a paradigm shift. We're going to look at that a little bit more tomorrow as far as the angel Gabriel is concerned. Uh, Here's an instruction in the scriptures. uh, And this instruction I've put here because it's important for all of us. If we are parents, especially, Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, Thou shalt teach, that's God's instruction, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And as parents, how many parents are here, by the way? If you have any, okay, most people are parents here. That's a very serious uh, and uh, instruction, the high responsibility. We are to teach diligently our children the things of God. What God has instructed us, what we understand to be, we are to teach diligently. And uh, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands if you do that. I, I, I pray we all do. And there are challenges with that, there's no doubt. But my point is this. Do you think the prophet of the Lord would have heeded this instruction? Do you think Ellen White would have heeded this instruction? I think the answer, the obvious answer is yes. What did she diligently teach her children when it came to who God is, and who his son is, and this issue. Because people say, well Ellen White changed in her later years, and, and so on. But strangely enough, she never told anyone about that change. Only the theologians today know that about that change. No one in the church at her day knows about that change. And in order to really ascertain if she changed or not, all we have to do is see, what did she teach her children? I think that's a very simple and good question. Here's James Edson White. One of Ellen White's children's, uh, children. Here is what he says, the angels therefore are created beings necessarily of a lower order than their creator. Christ is the only being begotten of the Father. What year? 1909. That's after the desire of ages was written. That's what he learned. See this is what he was told when his little boy in worship growing up in the White home. That's what he learned about God. You see, if we charge Ellen White with changing, then she has failed in teaching and instructing her children about that change. And she left them to go in darkness. Now you can believe that if you want, but that's really, really strange to believe. I'd rather believe that she didn't change, as she said. And she taught her children, and the evidence is in her children's understanding. Here's another one. Same, uh, same man, James uh, Edson, only one being in the universe besides the Father bears the name of God and that is His Son Jesus Christ. That's, right. That's consistent with what his mother said, that Christ was the only being who was one with, with God. And uh, here is just a confirmation from the Spirit of Prophecy to see that. This is an interesting quote, again a rare quote that I don't uh, see quoted by Trinitarians. Speaking about the war in heaven, this is what it says. Angels were expelled from heaven because they would not work in harmony with God. They fell from their high state because they wanted to be exalted. They had come to exalt themselves and they forgot that their beauty of person and of character came from the Lord Jesus. This fact, the fallen angels would obscure that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And they came to consider that they were not to consult Christ. The fallen angels wanted to obscure something. That means to hide it, to to obliterate it, to put it out of the way. They wanted to obscure the fact, not the title, not the uh, role, not any of these things when it comes to Christ. It's a fact. It's not a prophecy. It's not just a title he bears. It's not a role he's playing. It's a fact. That was a fact in the war in heaven. It wasn't something he would later become on earth. It was already a fact in heaven and the angels knew it and Satan was leading them to try and obscure this fact. You know what? He hasn't stopped trying to this day. And the fact that Christ is the only begotten son of God is obscured among the people that God raised to finish the work on earth. So it's a satanic doctrine that seeks to deny and obscure the fact that Christ is the begotten Son of God. That's what it says, isn't that right? So this is what we're dealing with here. It's a very serious aspect. Here is Willie White, other son of Ellen White. These are the only two that uh, live to become adults. And here's what he says. The statements and arguments of some of our ministers in their effort to prove that the Holy Spirit is an individual as our God the Father and Christ the Eternal Son have perplexed me and sometimes they have made me sad. One popular teacher said, we may regard him as the fellow who is down here running things. Now that's interesting. Willie White was saddened and puzzled by people trying to prove that the Holy Spirit is an individual, just like the father and the son. What year is that? 1935. Is that after the Zara of Ages? It is. What did Ellen White teach her son? I think the evidence is very clear. You know some of these ministers today are not a few. The majority of ministers today when it comes to this point seek to prove that the Holy Spirit is an individual just like Christ and the Father. That's the Trinity doctrine. That's what people do when they defend the Trinity doctrine. And people say well maybe Willie White was a bit mistaken, maybe this, maybe that. Well this is what we're told. I'll just read the highlighted bits. This is Ellen White. She said, this is what the Lord told Ellen White. The Lord would place on him, on Willie, the spirit of wisdom and of a sound mind, and that he would not be led away because he would recognize the leadings and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we can't lightly just disregard what he had to say. Now it's interesting, this to me is an unanswerable piece of evidence when it comes to the truth about God. Here's another satanic aspect of uh, what Satan is trying to do with these doctrines. And I'll just read the highlighted bits here. It says, Satan has weakened the churches in that he has sought to shut Jesus from their view as the comforter. Mm. And this is what people believe today. You ask them, who's the comforter? They say, it's the Holy Spirit. Who's that? Oh, that's an individual. There is the Father here and there's the Son. But there is this God, the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. You see, this is what Satan's trying to do. It's not Jesus who is our comforter, according to the Trinity concept. It is someone else called God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what biblical term you might ascribe to him. If it's anyone other than Christ, you have fallen for Satan's deception. If your comforter is not Jesus Christ himself, it's a Satanic deception. Now, that's what that's saying, not me. That's important to keep in mind. That's a dangerous thing. And we start attributing things to the spirit prophecy that she has not said. Then finally, let me just, here. she says here we haven't changed. There's no time for that. Let's just quickly hear. What about in heaven? Is the same truth consistent all the way to heaven? And this is what it says. I really like this quote from Child Guidance. It says, the years will move on in gladness. Over the scene, the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. While God and Christ will unite in proclaiming, there shall be no more sin, neither shall there be Anymore death, don't you want to be there? All those who will be there, brothers and sisters, we're gonna are going to hear that with their own ears, and they're gonna hear that proclaimed by the Father and the Son, no one else. Because on that mountain where we will stand and worship is written right now, it's in writing in heaven, the Father and the Son. That's who's worship. And so God gave to his people a solid foundation of truth when it comes to who he is. He wanted us to know who the king was. And uh, we know that. I'll just uh, finish that statement we started off with. It says, After the passing of the time in 1844, we searched for truth as for hidden treasure. Light was given that helped us to understand the scriptures in regard to Christ, his mission, and his priesthood. A line of truth extending from that time to the time when we shall enter the city of God was made plain to me and I gave to others the instruction that the Lord had given me. And so that line of truth from 1844 we're told here extends all the way to the city and that has to do with understanding who Christ was, his mission and his priesthood. We saw what that we saw some of the details of, of what that was understood, how that was understood in the church. In other words, if we to, to illustrate this line in its, in its fullest sense, and this is our last slide here, so we're, we're pretty much finished. This line of course starts in the Bible, first author of the Bible is Moses, confirmed by Christ and of course the apostles, Paul and the apostolic church. They all taught the foundational truth. Moses never taught a trinity. Jesus never taught a trinity. Paul never did, the apostolic church never did. You won't find it there. And like I said, there's material there that goes into the biblical foundation of that. And that consistent truth was carried all the way through history. And we found that in the wilderness church, they rejected the Roman concept, which actually comes from Babylon, of the Trinity. And uh, in the last days, William Foy, as well as Ellen White, they both bore the same testimony in harmony with everyone else. You see, in order for us to have a truth, we must demonstrate that it's consistent all through God's revelations and through God's faithful people through the ages. And of course, the remnant in the last days are gonna believe the same thing. And the same thing is actually believed in heaven. And that's what the remnant will experience and see in heaven. And that's what will take us to heaven, that consistent chain of truth and all its aspects, not just this particular point. And so it's important to see how history stands as a confirming witness to the foundation in the scriptures. It is impossible for the concept of the Trinity to have that consistent line. There is all kinds of juggling, trying to make it fit. As we said. you said, know, Ellen White is blamed to, for, for changing and all that, but it's not there. You see, brothers and sisters, to believe in the Trinity, you are required to give up a lot of the common sense that God put in your head. To believe in the Trinity, you have to believe that one does not equal one. <laughs> You have to believe that three equals one. To believe in the Trinity, you have to believe that the Son does not mean the Son. Mm. That the Father does not really mean the Father. That begotten does not really mean begotten. And a whole heap of other contradictions that defy your common sense. And of course, when, when it becomes too much, that's when people start saying, Well, brother, you know, it's a mystery because it doesn't make sense to us. God is not a mystery. The mystery God is the God of Rome. So I just shared a little bit of the evidence. I hope you understood it and saw it. There was a fair bit of reading. I'm sorry, but we just wanted to trace that line. And the point simply is this. God has established his people, the remnant. We're up there, just the last one before heaven. That's where we are today. God has given the remnant a solid foundation of truth when it comes to knowing who He is. And so I want us to understand that because it'll help us appreciate and understand what it means to be children of the King. We know who the King is. Let's kneel together. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.